Welcome to ACNL in Action, brought to you by the Association of California Nurse Leaders. I'm your host, Charlene Platon, and I have some great news. For the next few months, we'll be running some special bonus episodes highlighting some of the amazing poster presenters from this year's ACNL Annual Conference. We'll be airing these bonus episodes on the second Friday of the month, and we hope that you'll check them out. And for today's episode, we are focusing on patient safety. Adverse patient events continue to plague healthcare. The Institute of Medicine estimates that medical errors cost almost $30 billion a year, but this financial cost is often borne by payers as opposed to the facility itself. Our guest today is Dr. Steve Chin, Clinical Associate Professor at the Stanford School of Medicine. Steve has spent most of his career working in quality management and regulatory compliance, most recently working as the Administrative Director of Quality Management, Accreditation, and Regulatory Affairs at Stanford HealthCare. Steve makes the case that there are other costs of medical errors borne by hospitals that nurse leaders and other administrators need to be aware of. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Thanks, Charlene. Uh, It's glad to be with you and to be speaking to your membership. Yes, welcome to our podcast. And we're so excited to dive in. You've worked on both sides of the accreditation process, serving as a surveyor for the Joint Commission early in your career before moving into quality management at various, various hospitals. And how did that early experience inform the work that you do now? That's a That's a good question, Charlene, because I've had the opportunity to travel the country and internationally. And as far as I've seen, nobody ever comes into the hospital thinking we're going to make a mistake. Everyone's trying the best. They're they're trying to do the best they can to provide the best care they can. Absolutely. And how has that journey been, you know, going through all these different departments? Do you did you find that you enjoyed this work really early on or or did you kind of find this path later in your journey? Yeah, I, it actually, it was one of those things you kind of fell into. Uh, I actually had the opportunity to work with uh, surveyors for the hospital I was on staff at, and the CEO found out they were recruiting for surveyors, and he, he encouraged me to pursue this. I did not, you know, graduate from my training program, completed my residency, thinking I'm going to grow up to be a surveyor. But, uh, you know, sure enough, that's what I ended up doing. Great. And, you know, in talking about patient safety, the Institute of Medicine released an influential report about 20 years ago called To Err is Human, which is often credited for raising awareness of the risk of medical errors. And at the time, the IOM estimated that about 100 deaths, 100,000 deaths per year as a result of medical errors and set a goal of reducing that number by 50% over the following five years. And so 20 years later, where are we now? Uh, I think most of us would feel that we're still on the journey. Um, You know, we're getting better and better data. We've had more studies, uh, including the 2016 study by uh, Makari and his associate at Johns Hopkins saying that they estimated a quarter million deaths attributed every year to medical errors. So needless to say, the work is cut out. And I think prior to the 1998 report, uh, medical errors wasn't something that we would talk about. I mean, you think about things back then when something bad happens, you know, the, the people had a tendency to be uh, hush up or quiet up or let's not talk about it. But I think because of all the work over the last several years, people are more aware than ever before about the fact that medical errors do occur. Right. And this is such a challenging 
problem as you've alluded to and why why is it that this problem is so hard to solve or or what makes it so difficult and challenging you know it's a multifactorial uh issue um technology which we were counting on helping facilitate our work uh, actually created additional steps or challenges, even though there's guardrails built into things like electronic records to help us make sure that we give the right medication at the right time. Um, there's all these challenges and barriers that uh, keeps coming up that creates these obstacles. And of course, you know, we're, we're focused right now with applying concepts like lean, methodolo lean methodology, where we're trying to improve efficiency streamline processes. Uh, what we end up finding out is that, um, if anything, we now know that there's more steps to doing some of the simple tasks that we thought were pretty routine and basic. The other th challenge that we have is, you know, as an industry culturally, um, there's a, still a fair amount of independence. And because of the independence, whether you're a community physician working in a hospital or a staff nurse that may work at multiple facilities, uh, there's variations out there that is pretty challenging to try to standardize. And I think those are huge contributing factors to why we still have challenges in this area. Those are really great points. And the standardization um, in particular is really challenging. As a nurse by background, I've seen a lot of variation throughout nursing programs. I know for physicians, that could absolutely be the same, but also for other inter interprofessional members of our healthcare, uh, of our healthcare teams. And so so absolutely, with the many different organizations we have, programs we have, hospitals, there's a lot of moving parts, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, how do we provide care? Um, do we do it as lone rangers or do we do it as a team? So much of the care we're providing, um, and it doesn't matter whether you're inpatient or outpatient, it is all team-based. And so the question is, is there all the members on the team on the same page for that patient? We talk it. And we may have the same ID badge, you know, that says, you know, hospital, community hospital, you know, of California. But the reality is because the way we're trained, the way we were uh, interacting, the way we uh, communicate our different roles and function, that's a contributing factor to why we still have uh, medical errors. Right. Those are all great insights and, and definitely great considerations to make when considering this very vast and complicated challenge. And a study published in the Journal of Empirical Legal Studies found that hospitals only bore about 22% of the costs of medical errors, and the rest was shifted onto payers like Medicare. And so if this is true, or if you've heard about this, can you talk a bit about why hospitals still need to worry about these costs? Sure, absolutely. When, when we're looking at trying to uh, improve the efficiency and the effectiveness of the costs we deliver, Nobody ever plans on uh, rolling in a medical error or a medical event into those calculations. Uh, what was interesting about that particular study is that, you know, those are, those are estimations in terms of how cost is allocated. But the reality is, at least from a Medicare, Medicaid standpoint, uh, we also know that there's non-reimbursable care attributed to healthcare-acquired conditions or medical events that uh, wasn't part of a patient's treatment plan. So needless to say, there's an additional hidden cost that uh, we really should be aware of because, oh, uh, our bad, a patient, you know, had acquired a, uh, a pressure injury 
or they fell out of the bed and end up dislocating a shoulder. You know, it's it's one of those things that in the old days, you know, we would we kind of like, oh, that's just part of the process and we'll get reimbursed for the additional care that we provide. Nowadays, uh, Medicare leading the way, some of the third party payers are copying Medicare when it comes to these kind of events. Yes, and that's a great point that you raised. And I, I think a lot of people might not realize that. And do you have any sense of how, what the percentages of those events that might actually make up the whole, you know, all the visits that we see in the hospital? Is that a big percentage, a small percentage? Uh, well, if you look at the number, the, the data that kind of describes, um, you know, the percentage of the kind of events, probably, probably by far um, the leading the leading uh, cause or the leading type of medical errors or medical events has to do with diagnos- diagnostic uh, processing. In other words, timely diagnosis, appropriate diagnosis, um, you know, doing the right thing for the patient based on diagnosis. The next category of events is medical uh, medication events, uh, which knock on wood, a good number of them don't read a, reach a patient, but when they do, they could be catastrophic. And then right behind that are procedural events. And so if you look at those different categories, um, you know, for the most part, uh, a good number of the events could be, could be primarily attributed to those three buckets with certainly others that we should be considering, including things like falls. That's really good to know. And, and that's, that's so insightful because there are these different levels of, of events that could happen and all throughout various steps of the process throughout an admission from admission to discharge. So, so that's uh, really great to consider. And on top of those tiers that you had, or those different events that you had uh, already discussed, there's obviously an emotional human cost to medical errors, and uh, particularly for patients. Um, but from a financial perspective, what are the incentives for improvement um, there? Or can you tell us a little bit more about that? The emotional cost to the patient and the family um, it's very hard to quantify. Um, the only time you ever get a real handle on what that might be is, unfortunately, uh, when you your organization ends up getting served with a lawsuit, and they're claiming, you know, their claim includes emotional distress. So it's very, very hard to quantify. But then uh, on the other side of it, uh, the staff that are directly involved with these kind of events, um, you know, in some some world. You know, we would consider this a potential uh, trigger for PTSD. Uh, right now, we're all challenged with uh, workplace um, uh, burnout and looking at trying to figure out ways of improving our resilience. Uh, it's hard enough to be able to take care of a patient during this pandemic. And then to add on top of that, the stress associated with being involved with a medical error. Um, you know, it's really, I think we're, we're in the opportunity window, really study this well to understand what is that emotional cost and, and figuring out it's like, are there things we could do to help uh, improve the staff's ability to recover from such an event, as well as making sure that, you know, they, they're in a position to be able to stay functional in our organization. Um, you know, I think this is a huge challenge for all nursing leaders to be aware of that Yes, a bad thing happened. The staff was involved. A patient was hurt. We focus on the patient, but do we focus enough on the staff directly involved with that event to make sure that they could survive that episode? And we talk about that as these individuals being the second victim. Right, and and you're right. Um, just alluding to what you mentioned earlier, it, it is really challenging to quantify 
to different degrees how much the emotional cost can impact patient care, can impact these medical errors that happen. And absolute, and it goes both ways. How much does it impact the staff directly? How much does it impact the, and that could look like turnover, that could look like absences that are unexpected. And that could also look like um, patient care that's impacted. Yeah, and then to add one more on top of that, um, workplace injury. Um, I just completed an interim assignment with occupational medicine for uh, the enterprise. And one of the things that was kind of I anecdotal observation is that uh, more staff uh, would report workplace injuries, which I can't help feel is another factor in all this. And so when you combine uh, people providing or uh, staff providing comments about feeling tired, burnt out, not wanting to come to work, it manifests itself in many, many different ways. And then to complicate it with a medical error on top of that, uh, that's the tipping point for some of our staff. It's really challenging. I, and, and also, you know, not even, um, or especially considering the pandemic, to add on top of all the, the normal stressors or the, the, the usual stressors that one might encounter through a daily shift, having to, you know, you might take care of a complex patient um, load, but then, but then have all these unexpected events happen on top of it. And then maybe other factors that are more systemic, like maybe there was um, a lack of staffing or some, so, so many different things that I, I feel like it could really quickly snowball at times with, with all these challenges happening. You're, you're exactly correct. And, you know, I would encourage our, our nursing leadership, our organization leadership is just to be uh, super cognizant of the fact that, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like putting our staff on the line every day and expecting them to do excellent, which they do. I mean, there's no, no doubt in my mind, uh, the folks that I know, the folks I've talked to, you know, throughout the country over the last couple of years, they're doing the best they can with what they have. Uh, our, our challenge is that sometimes our system and processes aren't as a, uh, efficient that permits them to do the things they need to do. And, and there's a number of factors that lead into that. But I think one of the things is that we can do as an organization is that if they're involved with an event, is that having a support response program so that uh, folks can reach out to them. And we all know when people are involved in these events, they don't feel it just in the moment. Uh, it may take them a couple of days, a couple of weeks, a couple of months downstream before they realize, you know, it's like it, you know, it would hit them like a ton of bricks. So, you know, those of you who have implemented support, um, emotional support programs to support your staff, and I'm not just talking about the nurses. I mean, the physicians also are challenged with the same. Uh, I give you all kudos for pulling programs like that together. Absolutely. And earlier you spoke about the impact of, of uh, nurses and other clinicians maybe facing post-traumatic stress disorder, maybe having anxiety or other, other mental health challenges while working on the front lines. Uh, are there other types of emotional costs that other people, that people listening might not consider? Anything else that you might think about that, that might not be as widely known? Sure. One of the things that I, I, I need to throw into this mix, because we're talking about generally cost, is the time it takes to deal with the actual event. And I don't mean from the patient care standpoint, but I'm talking about the time it takes for that nurse to file the incident report, the time it takes to call up 
uh, the, their supervisor, their, their lead, you know, their manager. Uh, the follow-up time, you know, the interviews that you have to do to be able to evaluate and investigate. And then, and then in some cases, you know, it's not just the investigation meetings and the follow-up. Some may have the staff involved with your root cause analysis process, which in itself can be therapeutic, but also can be traumatic, depending mm-hmm. on how you run it. So, you know, there's a number of things from a staff perspective that, you know, when I first started doing this business, you know, the thought was, I'll just do a root cause analysis and everything will be fine. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've had situations where the staff told me after one of those meetings, I'm done, Steve. And I'm thinking, what do you, you're, okay, we're done for the day. Talk to your supervisor, maybe go home early. No, I'm done with healthcare. And they literally turn in their badge, their keys in that moment. Um, just because of the trauma associated with it. Um, okay, so we're talking about line staff. What about the managers, supervisors? It's the same thing. You know, those of you who are in those roles, you're dealing with the same thing. You're trying to figure out how do I get the job done? How do I maintain the staffing? How do I keep cost management uh, under control while still providing top-notch care? Um, there is a boatload of work that has to go with an event that gets reported to you that you'll have to report to quality, patient safety, leadership. So, you know, when you add those factors into that, it's not just a matter of a mere, oh, I reviewed the incident report, we're good to go. There's a ton of energy that has to be put into this afterwards. Absolutely. And I really resonate with everything that you've mentioned, especially during the past two years uh, with the pandemic. There's been a lot of trauma. There's been a lot of secondary traumatic stress that's been occurring on all levels of employment throughout the healthcare system. And it's a really big challenge. And and we do need to be more mindful of how we have some of these investigatory meetings, how we have some of these root cause analysis meetings, because you're right, a lot of these triggers might come up that we, that maybe not everyone is mindful of and how it impacts um, the people in the room or the people who are involved with with the patient's care or whatever um, incident might have happened. Um, But absolutely too, the reporting is a process that could take some time and everything involved with that. And it's, it's, uh, those are, those are definitely factors that people might not consider typically. And, you know, in talking to about a staff injury, I do wonder about workplace violence because I know that there has been an uptick in, in those incidents as well in the hospital. And is there any, um, data or any, any thoughts you have on workplace violence and how it contributes to some of these, um, errors or some of these events we see in the hospital? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the workplace violence has always been an OSHA priority. Uh, certainly here in the state of California, Cal OSHA has been heavily involved with trying to decrease workplace violence. Joint Commission actually just put this in as a requirement that's going to be effective here. Actually, I think it's effective now. So um, the fact of the matter is it starts off with education, training, uh, recognition, and then a response process to try to protect the staff. Now, you know, I've worked in freestanding behavioral health and, you know, you just learn to expect the unexpected. You just don't hope for the best. Uh, but, you know, it also translates into the medical surgical areas because of patients, you know, who might be uh, receiving a chronic or end stage diagnosis while they're in the hospital may elect to do something to themselves um, that you weren't planning on. So, you know, needless to say, this whole concept of addressing workplace violence is an important factor. And it is part of the whole, you know, the whole issue associated with your organization's culture in terms of your approach to support your staff. Absolutely. 
And with all these different challenges in mind, Steve, what are some suggestions for improvement? What, what can we do? So a couple things to think about. Number one, I mean, we all talk about being highly reliable, which a big part of high reliability is having a culture of safety. Uh, psychological safety is an important part for an organization to be successful at trying to prevent medical errors. Um, however, I find that most organizations are challenged with coming up with a quick solution or a good solution to it. Let's just look at ourselves. And if you are the type that what I would say is very re reactive to bad news, you as a leader, you may want to evaluate or get some feedback concerning how do you do when you receive bad news? Because if someone came to your office and said, Oh, we had another um, wrong site surgery that happened in the operating room. I, and you react by going nuclear on that person. The next time they have a report like that, they may not come to you. And that's not what you want to encourage as an organization that wants to have a culture of safety. The second thing you may want to think about is, is having a plan uh, to be able to support your staff when they're involved with traumatic events. Uh, not just a plan, but also having uh, the steps in place to operationalize supporting the staff and then being aware that it's not a one and done. It is going to be one of these things you may have to have someone touch base with that person on a regular basis, maybe potentially over the course of the next six months or a year. So there's a couple things that we can do as, as leaders of our organization, but it does start with each one of us and making the commitment and decision that uh, we are gonna do the best we can with supporting our staff because they are at the front line of the process. Those are great suggestions, Steve. And it does sound like there's a lot of work to be done um, at multiple levels. And would you say that it's probably uh, an equal um, contribution for both administration, frontline staff? How do you think we could get this started? Because sometimes there's top-down approaches, bottom-up approaches, but any recommendations there? Uh, a suggestion is a collaborative uh, approach at this. Uh, line staff is a little, sometimes a little skeptical when leadership says, hey, we got the greatest idea since uh, uh, sliced bread, okay? <laughs> and, then on, and then on the other side of it, if you're not the type that's going to be listening, get input from your line staff, you know, you maybe say, oh, they're just complaining again. I think, I think those of you who have organizations that have a collaborative approach between line staff and management, you all are on the right uh, page. The question is, do you want to talk about it? Do you want to work through it? You know, and I think if you if you could come to consensus of development approach, the line staff is going to be your champions. The managements could be involved with cheerleading and supporting it. Uh, all good organization I've seen out there has a combination of both parties on the same page working for the same goal. And, and that would probably be my one way of suggesting it. Those of you who are learning what your organization's all about, you know, the key thing is, of course, is developing that rapport and relationship to all parts of your organization in order, you know, to affect the culture to influence that change. Right, absolutely. And it sounds like, it does sound like your culture is a huge part of the approach that you take when it comes to responding to a lot of these different events. Um, a lot of these uh, incidents that might happen in the hospital impacting staff and patients. So it is really important for organizations to consider what is their culture? How do they like to solve problems? Are they reactive? Just like you said, when, when uh, multiple incidents might occur, especially during these challenging times. And, and I do think this is, a, this is a movement right now for organizations to really 
you know, look at what they've been doing for the past few years, decades, and see, you know, this could be really a time to, to shift some of these practices so we could really be collaborative, um, just like what you recommended. So thank you for sharing that. Absolutely. And as we wrap up our conversation, I just wanted to open the floor to you, Steve. Were there any other insights or expertise that you'd like to share with the audience today? Uh, Charlene, I think that was more than enough. <laughs> and I, I, would, I would encourage you, each one of us as leader, you know, I have this saying that a leader is someone who could point a finger at somebody else, but make sure that you're not the responsible party. And what I mean by that is one finger out, three fingers back, and so you as leaders, you need to be, realize that you are the one that's accountable, responsible, and it really is up to you. So uh, I wish you all the best. Uh, this is a journey. It is not a one-step thing, but it is a bit of a journey. So nothing better than get started on that now. That's great, Steve. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me, Charlene. Steve Chen is a clinical associate professor at the Stanford School of Medicine and the former Administrative Director of Quality Management, Accreditation, and Regulatory Affairs at Stanford HealthCare. And we'd love to hear your feedback as well. Email us at socialmedia.acnl.org and connect with us on LinkedIn and Facebook at ACNL Nurse. You can also rate us and drop a review on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. ACNL in Action is presented by the Association of California Nurse Leaders with new episodes on the first Friday of every month and remember to check out our first bonus episode in two weeks. To learn more about the show or ACNL in general, visit www.acnl.org. Thank you for listening.